Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we discuss the latest and greatest in Canadian politics with Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Canada's job market is showing signs of fraying. Just what does that mean for the Bank of Canada and their interest rate announcements? We'll get into that. And we cover all things in American politics with Jennifer Johnson, Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Prime Minister uh, is in Latvia this morning. Uh, that's actually his third visit to that country where he's meeting with uh, country's leaders and with Canadian troops who are over there right now as part of the NATO mission. Uh, Sarah Ritchie has some details for us. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is in Latvia ahead of the NATO summit, which begins Tuesday in nearby Lithuania. He's set to meet with the Latvian president and prime minister today, and he will also tour a military base where around 800 Canadian troops are stationed as part of the country's largest overseas mission. Canada leads a NATO battle group in Latvia, part of the effort to defend the alliance's eastern flank from the threat of Russian attack. Canada has also committed to grow that battle group into a combat-ready brigade, but so far, details of that move have not been announced. Sarah Ritchie, The Canadian Press, Riga. And we'll uh, start there with our, our weekly look at what's going on in federal politics. And uh, to that end, we are pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull, a professor at the Faculty of Management with Dalhousie University. Laurie, a pleasure to have you with us. And, and first and foremost, congratulations on your new position at, uh, at the university. Thank you. Thank you so much, Bill. And it's always good to be with you. I always enjoy our conversations. Uh, I, by the way, and also you're working, I, I know you've written a number of things in the past, but you're working on a book, and I want to talk about that before we finish today. Uh, sure. Let me start, though, with the trip to, to well, today anyway, to, to Latvia. Uh, how important is this for the prime minister? Because of the, the this is going to be a NATO meeting, of course, that's going to be happening. Uh, there is usually, a, a, at some point during these meetings, uh, some indication that Canada could be doing a lot more militarily when it comes to their commitment to NATO. Uh, was this move today to double the, the Canadian complement uh, in Latvia a, a kind of a, a, a way to get ahead of that whole issue when it finally does come up, and I'm sure it will this week? Oh, absolutely. Because I think, um, you know, the prime minister made that comment about how we're never going to meet our 2%. And that whether he made that comment or not, the fact is Canada has been far from that. Even when we have, have um, kind of boosted our contribution, it's still not to that level. And that's been noticed, of course, by uh, former President Trump, that was noticed quite a bit. And so I think that it's probably part of what Canada wants to do in terms of situating its place in the world and taking on some kind of a leadership role within NATO is that of a um, possibly a a broker um, as a a leader in a possible new arrangement where Ukraine is part of NATO, uh, these sorts of things. And so I think the prime minister is, is probably going to try to figure out how to show up differently a bit, uh, not because we're going to change, um, again, that 2% business, but that we can actually play different kinds of roles, especially since now, um, you know, we're getting to this this point where there's quite a bit of, um, I mean, not that there's never not disagreement in NATO, but there's quite a bit in terms of how it could be that, that NATO comes to include Ukraine, whether they should be getting a kind of fast uh, way direct way in or you know what happens there and trying to figure out how to play that and broker disagreement is going to be very challenging so it's possible that Trudeau sees a role for us there well especially because some of the the players in, meaning in NATO have already stated their their preference I mean President Biden has already said that uh it was the well it's not not ready it's not their time yet like you guys aren't ready for prime time I, I don't know what the concern here is because Biden's been one of the most strident supporters 
of of uh, this whole enterprise, of course, and and, and supporting Ukraine. But is there a concern within NATO that uh, that if they were to go down this road and say, okay, let's begin this process of, of letting Ukraine in, uh, that whole idea about of an attack on one is attack on all? Is, is that retroactive, Laurie? I mean, can they do that? Or is Because Biden's pre- seem, preference seems to be, wait till the war is over, then we'll talk. Oh, yeah, right. And so, exactly. And I think that's why there are things that Canada can say as a, you know, softer power or smaller power that the U.S. can't say as the big power, right? If if Trudeau goes in and makes the argument, we need to make this inclusive of Ukraine, we need to, like, we, you know, kind of take, even if he's not saying we've got to do this today, but he's kind of voicing this, this advocacy around Ukraine's inclusion and the, the importance of Ukraine governing itself and being in, its, in control of its own destiny and all the rest of it. Canada can say those things because we can't actually like do that, right? We can yeah. we can make that argument. We can be on their side, but we can't change the realities of like we can't change geopolitical military realities in the world. We are not we ju- we just aren't that. We are not that kind of player. If Biden says Ukraine should be part of like if he takes those ro- those words on, then it's like okay, so ge- you know geopolitical strategies are going to shift around the fact that the U.S is if the US is saying that, then they must be prepared to go ahead and defend Ukraine, you know, and get involved in a different way. Because if Ukraine's a NATO partner, then you go back to that, well, you know, an attack on one is attack on all of us. So here we go. And then we're in World War Three. So there's a certain order of operations here that Trudeau can play this role and Biden can't. But the implication we heard from from Ukrainian officials over the last couple of days, uh, employing the prime minister to do their bidding for them with some of the nations who may be sitting on the fence. Apparently, you know, the, the Americans are not on the fence. They pretty much made their position clear. Uh, but they can be outvoted, I guess, on this. I mean, if there's a majority of other people that are in favor of this. But I, I, I it, it seems likely it's it's around the same thing as trying to herd cats, though. I mean, you're getting so many different opinions from NATO leaders right now. They're not quite sure where they want to go. Yeah. And that's going to be, I think, a, a big part of the meetings this week is to see whether there's a, a possible consensus here and anywhere. Right. Like and it doesn't look like one is possible right now. But, um, you know, the realities of the the fact that this is what, like around day 500 of when Russia invaded Ukraine. And, you know, that it just seems like there's it appears that there's no ending in sight for this thing. And so the conversations around the NATO table now are going to take a di- different complexion that they did a year ago because the whole situation is just so like this is now an entrenched thing and there this has not stopped well it's going to be interesting this is more than photo ops this meeting they're going to have to make some pretty tough yeah. decisions on some pressing issues meanwhile back at home uh the uh, latest nanos poll uh of canadians about our political leadership here uh is not good news for the prime minister but also not good news for pierre polyev i, I guess uh, you know, we are being underwhelmed by uh, the two leaders who uh, both want to be, one is a prime minister, one's a prime minister wannabe. Uh, but both of them, in both cases, over half the people surveyed said they'd like to see Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Polyev removed as leaders before the next election. That's uh, that's pretty damning, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's not that's not awesome. And when I, I, when I looked at that, I looked uh, back at a, an article that The Globe published about six months ago. And similar thing. Um, the the question was pretty well the same in a poll that Nanos had done, I think, for, um, I think I'm right about that, for the Globe and Mail. And the result was 51% wanted Trudeau gone and 45% wanted Polyev gone. 
And so we're on it. This, this is not a one-off is my point, right? Like this is not mm -hmm. something that people are just sort of feeling right now because it's the summer and they're kind of ticked off at leaders. And it's not a big surprise. Like, I don't know about you, Bill, but I wasn't surprised to see the results of no. that, of that poll, but it was interesting to me to see that this has actually been a trend and that Polyev's, um, you know, positives are not getting better. His negatives are getting worse. There, there is a, there is more of a sense that people would like to see him replaced. But I mean, that's not going to happen. Like Pierre Polyev has not, he hasn't even been leader for a year. He's not done an election as leader yet, right? So, I mean, it's not like the the poll is, is going to be, okay, well, the two, the two parties are going to go back and choose new leaders. That's not going to be it. It's going to be, what are they going to do about it? When you see these numbers and you think, okay, half the people want me out of here, a little more than half the people want me out of here, what do I do? Because the good news for the two of them is that, you know, the people might not like me so much, but they don't like the other guy either. So there's a bit of an opportunity for the two of them. Well, the other element to this too, I mentioned this in my commentary earlier this morning on CHML, uh, likability is important, certainly, but I don't know if it's the, the deciding factor. Uh, you know, they didn't like Stephen Harper in 2005, but they were so tired of, of the liberals that they said, okay, fine, uh, we'll give them a shot. Uh, and it's happened in the past. I mean, <laughs> Mr. Trudeau's uh, popularity numbers have gone down considerably over the last number of years, uh, but he's won the last few elections, nonetheless, minority governments, but, you know, he's, he's still, you know, when the dust settles, still the prime minister. So I, I don't know how Canadians are going to respond to this. Yeah. I mean, I think even though it, you can look at those numbers and think, okay, they're roughly, the two leaders are in kind of the same position, almost statistically the same, but they're actually in very different positions because the reasons that they're there are very different. Like Trudeau has three problems. He has a voter fatigue problem because he's been prime minister for eight years. And there's not a whole heck of a lot he can do about that. I assume the the um, if he if he does shuffle the cabinet, it's about that. It's about showing up differently. It's about looking like you've got a new government, even though you don't. Um, he's got an affordability problem, a cost of living problem that the government has not looked responsive enough on. And given global realities, global supply chain, global inflation crisis, there's some things he can do about that, but not a whole lot of things. And his third problem is the unforced errors of his own government which I assume then will, if he does a cabinet shuffle, that's what this is about. It's about trying to put a better foot forward. And so he might be able to come across as being more responsive to the affordability issues, depending on how he lines things up going into the next session. Polyev's problem is that his likability hasn't gone up. He doesn't have a record. Nobody cares about when he was minister of state for Dem democracy or whatever it was. He doesn't have a, a record as a governor. So no one's blaming him for inflation or cost of living or anything else. It's just he hasn't been able to resonate with people. And so what he can do about it is is a very different question than what Trudeau can do about his set of problems. Uh, well, he's, uh, you know, he's ditched the tie and the glasses. I don't know if that's uh, step one in this process or what, but uh, it's going to be an interesting summary. And to see if there's going to be a new improved uh, prime minister or Pierre Polyev, I guess, come September when these guys get back to work. i uh, got a couple of minutes left. Let's let's talk about uh, the latest project that, uh, that you're uh, gearing your energies towards right now, a book about uh, another rather polarizing figure, Ontario Premier Doug Ford. Talk to us about that. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you for asking. Doug Ford is nowhere near as polarizing as the other two. I'm writing a book on Doug Ford. Uh, the question is going to be, how did Doug Ford become premier? So I'm going to focus on um, sort of this this kind of unlikely series of events in, events in some ways, right? The, the political implosion of Patrick Brown, which led the, to the door to be open for Doug Ford to come through it. Uh, how he won the leadership, beating out Christine Elliott and Carolyn Mulroney. Um, and then how he he built this campaign, uh, 
how he he built he with his, his late brother of course built up the political constituency of the ford nation and how durable that support is for him like who who was in ford nation how how um how committed, how deep is the commitment of people who identify with Doug Ford and want to support him? And so those are the sorts of things I'm looking at. It should be fun. I'm I'm excited about it. Well, I am too, because it's, it is quite a story. And uh, a lot of people in the province are asking, how did he become premier <laughs> for, for all the wrong reasons in some situations? But it just seems so unlikely, hasn't it? I mean, you know, it, it seemed his brother was was the the, the popular figure that, uh, and he seemed to be the guy that was just kind of tagging along. Uh, he made his, his announcement to run, of course, in the, in the provincial situation in his mother's basement in their house in, in you know, in, in, in Tobacco. Yeah. And you went there. Yeah. Okay. Big deal. Yeah. But, but you know, here he is. And it's, and I'm looking forward to the book. It should be fascinating because it's, it's an unusual story uh, to be sure. And there's uh, uh, so much uh, material to gather here and uh, about exactly what's going to be happening. And uh, it's, it's always fascinating to get the story behind the story on all these situations. Uh, Laurie, again, uh, congratulations. I know you've got a full summer and lots of work going on and I appreciate the time uh, that you take for us every Monday. Do you uh, bring us up to speed on what's going on? Thanks so much for this today. Thank you too. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, professor in the Faculty of Management at Dalhousie University. And uh, I was going to say, uh, well, she's been writing for a long, long time, but the book about Doug Ford should be rather an interesting read as well. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. That's going to be a real hardship. I mean, if you were earning, say, between 53000 and 106000 I mean, you've got to earn because these are after-tax dollars you pay your mortgage with. You'd have to earn nearly $1,000 extra a month. That's why it's going to be a hardship. And as I say, different mortgages, but it sure gives you an idea what some people are going to be facing as we go through this year and the next couple. That's a global financial analyst, uh, Michael Campbell, speaking over the weekend. Uh, what he's referencing here is, is if, if you took out a five-year mortgage back in 2000, uh, you probably, have, he said about close to $500,000, your monthly payment is probably at about 1900 bucks because that, that, that was about 2%. Now you get the five-year fixed at 5%, uh, that same size mortgage is going to cost you about, about $730 more than it already has per month. Uh, and that's that's really stretching it for an awful lot of people. And that's maybe what we're going to be in for, uh, because the Bank of Canada will make an announcement later this week, and uh, it's probably going to increase interest rates once again. So what are the impacts and why the, 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 the decision to keep moving ahead with this policy? Let's ask our next guest all about that. Moshe Lander is a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. Moshe, always a pleasure. Thanks for making some time for us today. Good morning. I, I know when you and I talked about this last week, and we kind of figured it was maybe a 50 50 uh, as to whether the Bank of Canada was going to move forward on this. Uh, some of the language I've heard from the banks and some of the economists, and I watched you on CTV over the weekend too with your clips. Uh, it, I think it's about 90 to 10. This is going to happen, isn't it? Yeah, I think everybody's talked it into existence. And so I think it, because the, the Bank of Canada is so concerned about credibility and being sure that they follow up on what they say, that at this point, if they don't increase interest rates, then that sends a signal to markets that maybe uh, the worst is over. And uh, I guess they almost now have to do it just to, to back up what they say. And the, the inclination here seems to be that, look at, yeah, we've seen some positive signs, uh, but spending is still up. And I guess that's a concern to them, isn't it? That and uh, the 60,000 jobs that were created. It's its weird that an economy that's creating jobs is seen as maybe a threat here. But, you, you know, the, the economy continues to perform 
well. And when you've seen this many interest rate increases, this fast, this much, you would think that some of the air would have been knocked out of the economy. And, and the fact that that doesn't seem to be happening is either people are not paying attention to those interest rates or the, the numbers you were quoting, for example, about the five-year mortgage just doesn't seem to be making a dent. And so the Bank of Canada has to keep nudging that interest rate higher until people get it through their head and the data starts to show that people are getting it through their head. You mentioned, let's, let's talk a little about that because there are so many numbers coming at us right now. Uh, as you mentioned, jobs have been created and that's, that's supposedly, and, and most of the time is good news, but the unemployment rate rose to 5.4%, up from 5.2%. Uh, if there's so many jobs out there, why is, why, why are so many people unemployed? Yeah, that's the amazing thing about how the calculation of the unemployment rate is done. The unemployment rate is the number of unemployed people as a percentage of what's called the labor force. The labor force are employed people and unemployed people. So what you have happening here is that a whole bunch of people have entered the labor force. And so there's a bunch of people that entered and found jobs. That's the 60,000. But there's a whole bunch of people that also entered that didn't find jobs. Those are unemployed. So the number of unemployed in relation to the labor force went up. And so we have this mixed bag then that on the one hand, yeah, jobs are being created, but at the same time, there's a greater percentage of people that are unemployed. So where does this leave us now? Because as you say, these are indicators that, that, that Macklin is, Tip Macklin has talked about for some time, what he wants to see happen. We had to slow down our spending. We're not quite getting that message yet. Uh, we want to slow down economic growth, and and that seems to be happening to a certain extent, although not to the to the degree that he'd like to see it happen here. But the concern here, and you talked about this to us almost a year ago now, uh, is is this is a balancing act because you don't want to send everybody into a recession, or at least if you're going to, it's got to be quote unquote soft landing. Are we still uh, on record for a soft landing, or is this thing going to crash? No, I, I think a soft landing is still entirely possible. The, the fact that the GDP growth number is strong, the fact that jobs are being created, and they were mostly full-time jobs too, not even part-time jobs, uh, suggests that you know if you're nudging up this interest rate, uh, then it, it seems that fine, the GDP slows down, but is it going to slow down that substantially that it tips us into recession? Doesn't seem particularly likely. And you know, the interest rate increase that's probably coming on Wednesday is a quarter of a percentage point. Bill, you mentioned last year when we were talking about these things. Uh, last year, remember at this time was the full one percentage point increase. So at this point, the the Bank of Canada really is in fine tuning mode rather than some sort of gross adjustment that's needed. Yeah, uh, Macklin seemed to indicate that, uh, yes, it's probably going to go up this week, but it's probably going to go up again next month, too. Uh, and and you've heard the voices I certainly have on this program, Moshe, that, hey, enough is enough. This is overkill. Uh, let's just, you know, dial back a little bit. Uh, yet Macklin seems intent to simply, he, he wants to not just wrestle this thing to the ground, he wants to put it in the ground. Yeah, and you know, it, it, I understand the frustration of Canadians that enough is enough. Even I think the CIBC was on the record saying enough is enough. You're not helping yeah. our business model here. Um, but the reality is that think about the way the Canadians have reacted in the last year to inflation just being in the high single digits. Like it didn't enter double digit territory. It certainly didn't enter Venezuelan, Zimbabwe style territory. Like it, it just it went up to eight percent last year for a month, and. and People have lost their minds uh, in how devastating that is for them. Uh, when grocery prices are going up 9% year over year, this is the the end of the, the economy for some people. Uh, I get it. But the Bank of Canada then is coming back and saying, that's why inflation has to be at 2% 
come what may. And so, you know, we can't have it both ways that if we're complaining about the, the dangerous effects of inflation, which are true, uh, then you need to keep inflation low. And if the way to achieve that is by increasing interest rates until, like you said, wrestle it to the ground, that's what we have to do. Food prices are, are one of the main forces that, that we're still dealing with here. And as you say, uh, they're going the wrong way. Uh, everything else seems to be going down. Heck, even the price of fuel has gone down in the last little while. Uh, what do we do about food prices? I mean, nobody wants, to, I don't think anybody wants to see the government start moving in and saying, don't worry, we got this. We'll, we'll make sure the prices go down. That usually doesn't go well. Uh, but there's there's got to be some attention paid to, to that one factor, don't they? Yeah, I, I think that one of the interesting things is that it's maybe highlighted uh, through the grocery industry that Canada fundamentally lacks competition, not just in that industry, but there's so many industries. And I'm, I'm sure we could make a list top of my head, things like airlines, banks, uh, Internet service providers, uh, your your cell phone plants, gas stations. We, we lack competition in this country. It's part of the nature of being a thinly spread country across a wide landmass that relies on transportation and has to deal with a changing climate. Uh, but the fact is that when you lack competition, you hand pricing power to those that exist within that market space. And the grocery industry is one that from almost the farm to the shelf lacks competition. So everybody along that supply chain has that price power ability. So by the time that we see it, uh, prices rise rapidly above what they should. Government needs to introduce uh, some sort of form of, of competition promotion. Usually that would be through the Competition Bureau and carefully scrutinizing uh, mergers or things like that. But they've been defanged for 30 years that I don't think that this is something that can be fixed very quickly. Isn't that the problem, though? I, I Listen, we could spend the next four hours talking about that, uh, about lack of competition. But the government seems to be aware of it. But the, to a certain extent, the government agencies are part of the problem because they're the ones that grant the licenses. Uh, for instance, for telecommunications, uh, the airlines, I mean, apparently the last three weeks have been just hell for people that are trying to travel. That was all Air Canada. And that affected the whole airline industry in this country because of one airline. Uh, we saw what happened with Rogers last summer when when they started having problems. The whole system went down. Uh, you'd like to think that they thought, you know, we should do something about that. They talk the talk, but I don't notice a whole lot of courage to actually move forward and say we got to allow more competition here. Yeah, and and it's not just uh, one particular political party. It, it's the entire no. set of politicians that have been complicit in this over 30 years. So you and I uh, reminisced uh, about Paul Martin blocking mm -hmm. bank mergers back in the 90s. Um, you know, that doesn't exist anymore. And so a, a lot of the, the view has turned towards pro-business, not anti-consumer, but just nobody's standing up to uh, business lobbies that have become extremely adept um, at, at lobbying the government. And one of the easiest ways in which they do it is they basically poach the politicians as soon as they're done their political career. And, and you you hear that Jason Kenney, former premier of Alberta, is now going to work uh, for a company that, guess what, is going to lobby the government for special treatment. So, um, you know, the, the consumer voice is not being heard very clearly. Uh, even now, when we're talking about grocery prices and, and how bad they are, uh, the solution was this two to $600 one-off payment that they called a grocery rebate, but then also said you can spend it on whatever you want. Uh, if, if this is the, the solution, th this is not going to work. Oh, yeah, and they haven't learned that lesson yet either, have they? Well, we'll uh, wait uh, in great anticipation to see what Mr. Macklin says on Wednesday. Uh, Moshe, as always, thank you so much for this. I always appreciate the time. 
anytime. Take care. Moshe Lander from uh, Concordia University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, I want to uh, head down to Washington, D.C., our, our, our weekly look at what's going on in American politics. As we mentioned, uh, the president is is in Europe right now for the NATO meeting. You met with the, the king, King Charles, and uh, the British prime minister earlier today, but uh, they're all off to the meeting with a great deal of emphasis, of course, on Ukraine. So to talk about this and, and things on the uh, the political scene, because we're also in, well, you're always in an election cycle, I guess, when you get to American politics. Uh, pleased to welcome to the program Jennifer Johnson. Jennifer is Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Jennifer, thanks for joining us on a very busy day today. Appreciate the time. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about, I want to just very much briefly talk about Biden over in Europe right now. Uh, amid some controversy, uh, of course, the announcement about more munitions and more aid for Ukraine, which is not unexpected. Biden's been a, a very strong supporter of, of, of Zelensky and the Ukrainian effort there. Uh, but the, 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 the idea about the cluster bombs that he has committed to uh, raised a, a lot of protests from a number of different nations, including NATO members, who just said, look, they're not illegal, but they're unethical. What are you doing, Joe? What, what, what kind of reaction is that getting on the home front? Well, pretty much the same. I mean, there are obviously Democrats who are supporting President Biden's decision, but some who are critical and a lot of Republicans who are very critical um, the president decided to provide Ukraine with cluster bombs uh, because he said the country was running out of ammunition and they needed them. He said this is a temporary move, um, but it, as you say, it's been very controversial, particularly because over 100 countries ban cluster bombs. And so it raised a lot of eyebrows that the president decided to make this decision. He said it, you know, he made it based on uh, what his military advisors told him. And like I said, he said it's a temporary move, but it, you know, it, it certainly is a controversial one. It certainly is that. But again, I guess what they're trying to do is get the lay of the land and what's going on in Ukraine, and especially with the the Russian effort towards that, which is very cloudy these days, isn't it, Jennifer? I know, uh, you know, there was some talk a, a few weeks ago about the Russians moving nuclear warheads uh, into Belarus, and and that's uh, raising concerns uh, on the U.S. side of things. And and of course, the Wagner troops uh, have they been disbanded? Uh, you know, we've got stories now that uh, that uh, some of those people were seen in Moscow, actually. Over the last couple of days, so have they have they been reconstituted? Uh, what's what's the concern from from Washington right now about where Russia is going next uh, in the Ukraine war? I think, as you said, it's very unpredictable. I mean, Russia is obviously showing no signs of backing down in this war, um, and you know, there's there's talks that you know Putin is going to escalate and continue to escalate, and so I think that's the concern in Washington. That's the concern with the Biden administration that. You know that Putin's not—he's just not going to go away uh, when it comes to Ukraine. But, you know, the United States has already pledged forty billion dollars in military aid to Ukraine, and that—you know—that's becoming a, a stickier issue uh, in Congress for the president because it's—you know—it's been a lot of money. Um, I think the war now is in its five hundredth day, um, and so how much more money? How many more bombs? How much more military equipment can the U.S. provide? Um, it's certainly going to be a huge election uh, cycle issue for the president and for the Republicans who say enough is enough. Well, and, and it's funny how it's divided along political lines uh, of support. As you mentioned uh, in one of your previous reports, uh, a lot of Republicans have just said enough is enough. This is not our war. Let's just get out of here altogether. Uh, but Biden's comments about about uh, Ukraine's acceptance into NATO, I thought was interesting uh, over the last couple of days, where he basically said not yet. 
uh, they're not ready for it yet, which I assume means as long as there's a war going on, uh, they can't do that. Uh, now, that's got to please, I would imagine, some of the Republicans who've been against uh, the U.S. involvement in that altogether. Uh, but others who have been very supportive of Biden's support for, for Ukraine have to be thinking, well, I, I thought you had this guy's back. Is, 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 is he getting a mixed reaction to this? I don't, I don't get a sense he's getting that much of a mixed reaction. He's been very, the president's been very clear that Ukraine is not going to be allowed into, or uh, voted into um, NATO until this war is over. I, the biggest concern is if they allow, if the NATO countries, the U.S. and its allies vote to allow Ukraine into NATO while this war is going on, then it becomes NATO's war. Then you've got NATO military jets, you know, involved, and, and this becomes another, you know, widespread European war. And so I think that Biden's been very clear from the get-go that it's not going to happen until the war is over. And he does have um, international support on that. So I, I, you know, he's been clear and, and he hasn't changed his tune about that, um, but it continues to make headlines. And obviously ahead of this meeting, um, the NATO meeting, the NATO summit in Lithuania is getting more headlines. Uh, back in the home front, uh, I, I just mentioned for Ray Jones. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, uh, there's a. I was going to say they're always in election cycle down there. Of course, I mean the the presidential race for 2024 started the night of the, uh, the the last election. Of course, when Trump was still thinking that he had won or telling people he had won. Anyway, one of the the last thing anybody wants to hear in U.S. politics and in a presidential year is third party candidate because as history has shown us, Jennifer, it, it does nothing but screw things up. Um, you know, when Ralph Nader ran for president, it, it essentially killed the Democratic nominee for president. Uh, when Ross Perot ran years ago, uh, that, that pretty much uh, was the end of the, the cycle for George Bush Sr. And Bill Clinton got elected president. Because uh, no matter what, you're either left or right. You, know, you can call yourself whatever you want. But if you're not a Republican and you're not a Democrat, you're really messing the system up, aren't you? Right. I mean, you know, the whole Bernie Sanders thing. Didn't do yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, there's, there's talk that Joe Manchin, who is a oh, describe this, conservative Democrat um, <laughs> from West Virginia, um, may come into the race as an independent, and the Democrats are pretty much begging him not to do it because they feel it's going to take votes away from Joe Biden, and it'll put a Republican in the White House. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see what he decides. He's one of those guys who is uh, independent, and he uh, he's always a surprise for the Democrats in terms of how he votes, and he is not kind of a party guy, doesn't so stick to the party line, and it'll be interesting to see if he does it, but there are all kinds of groups that are uh, meeting with his people to say, please do not do this, or we're going to hand the White House through, like I said, to the Republicans. I mean, you're right, Julie, I think. can pick one. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, this is a Democrat that votes like a Republican, and, and and so you know that only muddies the waters even more, doesn't it? Right. I mean, he consistently does it. He, I mean, he infuriates the high-level Democrats in Congress because he consistently votes with the Republicans. Um, he you know, he's an interesting guy. He always says, "This is what you know my constituents want. This is how I'm going to vote." Um, but you know, now that he's you know made some potential moves to get into the presidential race, then, you know, it's, it's going to a whole other level. And this is a level that the, you know, the key Democrats, the Democrats National Committee, you know, they do not want to save. Uh, speaking of people that uh, are mucking up the waters here, uh, Ron DeSantis uh, is, 
proud of the fundraising, but he, he he's getting about a tenth of the money that, that Trump is raising right now for his campaign. Uh, is, is he is he still in this race? I mean, he's is a distant second. Uh, and I, I know we're still a year and a half away, but the primary season's not that far away. Uh, and at some point, he's got to start making up some ground, doesn't he? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Ron DeSantis' polling numbers are, you know, they're down 10 points from, I don't know, four months ago. It seems like the more he talks, the worse it gets for him. Uh, he's not <laughs> great in terms of interviews. It'll be interesting to see how he does in the debates. The first Republican debate is supposed to be in August. Um, he's just not one of these guys who's particularly charismatic or quick on his feet. I mean, he's, he's a smart man um, based on his education, but he does not uh, do well. I mean, it's you know they always say in Hollywood the camera loves you know loves a face, and the camera does not love Ron DeSantis. He's not great on camera, and so it's not helping him. And he also can't seem to talk about issues that a lot of Republicans and Democrats feel are, are more important to the country. He seems to be obsessed with the LGBTQ community, the whole Disney fight, uh, banning books. It's all this kind of controversial minutiae, and people are like, what's, you know, what is this guy about other than talking about this stuff? Um, so he's getting, he's getting a lot of criticism, both from Republicans and Democrats, um, obviously Democrats, but you know, from within his own party. And so, and, and Trump seems to be still the front runner, which is mind boggling to those of us who cover him. You know, he's, he's, he was convicted in the rape trial. He's now been charged with, you know, multiple counts, including violations of the Espionage Act. Um, he just is, he couldn't be more controversial, and yet he keeps polling higher than any of the other candidates. What's going to be interesting is, you know, what happens to people like Mike Pence and and Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, you know, or Chris Christie, um, and and can they, you know, emerge, you know, from this <laughs> from this mess as I call it? Well, and Christie seems to be the only one that really has the the the, the hutzpah, I guess, is the word this in, uh, to go after Trump. I mean, personally go after him. I mean, Pence. This is this is a guy that stood by while they wanted to hang Mike Pence, I mean, but he won't say anything badly or bad rather about about his former boss. Uh, are they afraid to blow away the Trump base? Are they afraid to get anybody who's a Trump supporter uh, angry because they just turned their backs on the other guys? Well, I mean, Chris Christie is the guy who, I mean, I think that that deep down he's he's pretty sure he's not going to get elected. He's not going to get the party's nomination. But he, so he's going after Donald Trump like crazy. I mean, he's, he just over and over and over is going after him and saying the things that some of the more moderate Republicans are privately saying. And this is a guy who, you know, when Donald Trump was diagnosed with COVID, he met with, you know, his advisors, including Chris Christie, for four days before telling them he was positive for COVID. And Chris Christie then got COVID and almost died. And so, there's no great blood between these guys right now. Chris Christie is going after him. Um, and people are listening, but not enough. <laughs> I mean, Trump still is, you know, as you point out, still pulling really high. And I, maybe if this trial, um, you know, with the you know, secret documents, that that goes to trial before the election, and that's an if, some people's minds will change, but nothing seems to stick to this guy. Yeah, well, Christie actually got, uh, he was positive COVID at a White House event, wasn't it? One of those uh, big parties that Trump threw on the front lawn, uh, which he attended and was diagnosed, I think it was in 24 hours later. 
so there's no love lost between those guys. But the the the, the support that Trump seems to be still gathering, uh, and he's on a speaking tour. I mean, he's still doing his campaigning, etc. Uh, is the trial really going to to be that roadblock that some people are are characterizing it as? Because uh, it just seems right now as if that's kind of going off on its own. And the wild card in that trial, of course, is is the judge who's a Trump appointee who's already shown some favoritism towards Trump. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's going to be rulings and appeals and rulings and appeals. That's why I'm not sure it's going to get the trial uh, before the election, in which case, you know, Trump, you know, that, as you said, is not going to stick. It'll be interesting to see what happens when there are debates, if Trump even attends any of the debates, because, um, you know, there are, Chris Christie's quick, quick with the tongue. Um, I wouldn't say Mike Pence is a great debater. Nikki Haley is. Tim Scott is. Um, so they're going to go after him. And it'll be interesting. I, I, I just don't see, I mean, maybe Trump will get the party's nomination. I don't see who's going to get it at this point. I mean, everybody, you know, six months ago, a year ago, people were talking so highly of Ron DeSantis, not anymore. So I, I, you know, I don't have a crystal ball to see how this is going to unfold with the Republicans. It's, it's certainly going to be very interesting, though, <laughs> as it always is. Well, I'm I'm always intrigued by the stat, not just the stats that are being presented with your reporting, uh, but the strategy that some of these people are employing. And as I say, it seems to be they don't want to take the gloves off against Trump. Uh, and then you've got a guy like, as you say, DeSantis, who's just not making up any ground at all. And the story over the weekend was that he's going to start doing interviews with the what he calls the mainstream media. In other words, the uh, the MSNBCs and CBSs, I guess, uh, which he has heretofore not done. Uh, is that such a wise strategy, given the fact that he doesn't seem to even be scoring points when he's ta- talking to the right-wing media? I think it's risky for Ron DeSantis. I mean, the, you know, just strange things keep coming out with him. Like, the, you know, this past weekend, um, I don't know if your listeners remember, but a, a building, apartment building, collapsed in Iowa a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And he, Iowa being the first caucus in the United States, and he asked the governor, you know, could we send rescue teams from Florida? And the governor of Iowa said, no, we don't need them. And he then tweeted nine hours later that Florida search and rescue teams were going to Iowa to help the great people of Iowa. And of course, you know, uh, NBC News got a Freedom of Information Act um, order and found out it was a lie. And so, you know, you can't make dumb mistakes like that because the mainstream media is going to find out. And, and so... I mean, I don't think he has a choice to do interviews with the MSNBCs and the CNNs. Um, but how it's, you know, is it going to benefit him? He and his team have to wise up, and um, they're making they're making rookie mistakes right now. Yeah, I think one of the big missteps when Trump was going for re-election, of course, was that Jonathan Swan interview uh, with Politico that uh, that pretty much exposed yeah. an awful lot of uh, of the the frailties, I guess, that Trump had. But uh, you know, replay that for DeSantis and see if he wants to give that a second thought. Anyway, it's going to be a tumultuous week as always in Washington, and we'll be watching for your reporting on this, Jennifer. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate the conversation. Thanks, Bill. It's fun being with you always. Take care, Jennifer Johnson, uh, global correspondent in the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.